right, so we are continuing on in Unit 5 of Parables of Jesus. And Unit 5 is the cost and the lost. And I know I'm repeating myself, but the context of these parables, all of these parables in this unit happened on the same day. If you were walking with Jesus on this day, you would have heard all of these parables back to back to back to back with very little break in between. And so I'm trying to draw out some rich elements from these parables based on the fact that they are told in a series together. Jesus was not making a mistake by telling all of these parables back to back. He's expressing a point and he's going deeper and deeper as we go. So just a quick refresher, we started in this context by Jesus asking Pharisees if it was against the law to show mercy by healing a sick man with dropsy on the Sabbath. The Sabbath says no ordinary work. Is it against the law to do the work of healing this man? And the Pharisees couldn't answer. So Jesus says, okay, well, if you had an animal that fell in a ditch on a Sabbath, would it be against the law for you to go and get your animal out? Wouldn't you get your animal out of a ditch if it fell in a hole even though it was the Sabbath, and they couldn't answer. So then Jesus notices that the Pharisees are all posturing for the best seat at the table. They want to look like the most important person in the room. So he tells a parable about taking the lowest place, not the highest place, but the lowest place, and proceeds to tell another parable about the wedding feast, how those who were originally invited to the wedding feast were so focused focused on the things of this world that they gave worldly excuses for why they couldn't come to the wedding feast. The Pharisees must have had some level of being able to interpret that Jesus was saying, you're focused on the wrong things and you're missing the invitation to the very messianic banquet that you are longing in expectation for, for it to come. So Jesus goes on from there. He leaves the Shabbat meal where he's at and he's surrounded by great crowds, but I believe that it's still the same day. And he says to the crowds of people that are with him, if any of you will not take up your cross to follow me, then you are not worthy to be my disciple. You have to love God. You have to love Jesus more than your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, your wife, your children, everyone, and even your own life. Following Jesus might cost you your very life in a literal sense, but it will cost you if you are not willing to renounce all that you are and all that you have to follow Jesus, then he says you are not worthy to be his disciple. It's going to cost you more than just a good seat at the table. Well, the Pharisees hearing all of this, they start to grumble. Why? Because they're hearing these parables, which are somewhat told as a rebuke to them, but also even more offensive than being rebuked is that Jesus is being followed by sinners and he's receiving them and he's dining with them and he's feasting with them and he's looks like he's even being friends with them and the Pharisees start to grumble. And so Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep. If you had a sheep that were lost, wouldn't you go and find it? He tells the parable of the lost coin. If you lost a coin, you Pharisees, you lovers of money, If you lost a coin worth a day's wage, wouldn't you go and find it? But those two parables were just 
setting the stage for the parable of the lost son, of how much more value in the sight of God is a human being, is a human soul that needs to be restored, who has gone astray and wound themselves up in a ditch. Doesn't that person, when they realize that their life is in a ditch because of their own prodigal choices, no matter how horrible and terrible those choices may have been to get them into that mess, when they repent and they realize, you know what? I have messed up and I don't even deserve to be called God's son anymore. I have done so horribly that I need to go and just offer myself as a slave in my father's house. When people get that revelation, when they come to their senses and repent of their sins truly and deeply in their hearts, then God, like the father, receives them with joy. Yes, through your faith in Jesus Christ, my son, who has died an atoning death to forgive all of your sins. Yes, come and be restored to relationship with me. And then like the parable of the shrewd manager, your sins have all been washed away. Your debt has been completely forgiven. God is not demanding full payment. Yes, the law would demand full payment from you, but Jesus goes on into yet another one. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John the Baptist. But starting with John the Baptist, the law is no longer being proclaimed. What is proclaimed now by God's representatives is the kingdom of God and the new covenant, forgiveness of your sins through the shed blood of Jesus. God no longer counting your trespasses against you. That is the ministry of reconciliation that we have. Jesus is telling all of these parables back to back to back to back. Do you see how he's telling a story through these various parables, but they all go together? But Jesus is not quite done. So he finishes up saying to the Pharisees that everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. We talked about that in the last class. You can't be subscribing to or following the old covenant and the law and the prophets and being in the new covenant at the same time. You have to completely die to the one in order to live for the other. Well, Jesus just finished up saying that the law and the prophets is not going to be abolished. Nothing of the law and the prophets will disappear or be altered at all until heaven and earth pass away. And then he proceeds to tell another parable about a rich man that is right in line with the setup of all those other parables that he's told in this one setting. So we're at Luke 16, starting with verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. 
And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Whoo! Jesus is saying a mouthful. So let's start to break this down. So the rich man who had no name. Do you see? It's a little dig there. The rich man, he has no name. Lazarus, we know his name. Lazarus's name means whom God helps. The rich man, he's anonymous. Nobody knows who he is. It doesn't matter. He's in Hades because he did not live a righteous life. His name is not written in the book of life. The rich man had the finest clothes. So we know purple cloth would have been the most expensive in that day. We even know from the book of Acts, there was a woman named Lydia. Lydia was a maker of purple cloth and the apostle Paul stayed with her. She was a wealthy woman. She probably had a very large house or an estate because of her business and the money that she had from her business. And so the Apostle Paul and his companions stayed with her when he was in Philippi. And so purple cloth would just shows that the rich man, he had all the best designer clothes in his day, the finest materials, the best colors, the latest, greatest, most wonderful designer labels. That's what the rich man had. And he ate gourmet food. Maybe he had a special diet of all the favorite things that he he liked the most. And so he had the finest clothes. He ate at the best restaurants. When the feast was at his house, he had all the best foods. He only shopped at the most expensive markets. Okay, I'm being the, I'm doing this for dramatic effect so you get what I'm talking about. Especially if you live in a Western culture, this type of lifestyle should start to sound familiar. He was eating and drinking and making merry in this life for his own enjoyment. Well, that's the lifestyle of the anonymous rich man who didn't make it into the kingdom of heaven. Just saying. Now, Lazarus, the poor man, he, his name means whom God helps. He was a poor beggar and he was covered with sores. Now that can happen if you're familiar with the homeless. If you have to sit or lie down on the street or you are not able to bathe for days or weeks or even months at a time, then your skin can break out in sores and they're very painful. And Lazarus was covered with sores and he longed for even just a crumb from 
from the rich man's table, who had all the finest foods and probably wasted portions of it. Lazarus is sitting there, and instead of him eating a morsel from the rich man's table, the dogs were licking at his sores. So dogs will do that. Now, these would have been wild dogs, street scavengers, who were considered completely and totally unclean from a Jewish perspective. Now, this, remember, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience, Pharisees who know the law, uh, Jewish people who would be familiar with the law, and who would have a Jewish perspective on this parable. Now, Romans at the time, they may have had domesticated dogs who were domesticated for the purpose of being a guard dog, uh, guarding their master's household and being ferocious guard dogs. But these dogs were just street dogs who, while Lazarus is hoping for a morsel from the rich man's table, these dogs are hoping to eat Lazarus because he smells pretty good because his sores are bleeding. And so the, the dogs are like, hmm, let me sink my teeth into him. Okay, this would have been the total picture of uncleanness from a Jewish perspective. Well, Lazarus, he went on to Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is a term, now the ESV had said Abraham's side, but Abraham's bosom might be in your translation. And that was a term that was used in that day for the place where the righteous dead would go. Now, remember, this was before Jesus opened the way to heaven. And so there was a place for the dead. It was called Sheol. But so the dead would go to Sheol. Sheol and Hades. Hades was the part of the place of the dead where the unrighteous dead went. And there were fires there and the devil and his demons were there. And it was a place of eternal fire and torment for those who had not lived a righteous life. But Abraham's bosom is the place where people who lived a righteous life would go after death to be with Abraham and await the kingdom of God, which would be established when Messiah comes. So this is what all of Israel is waiting for, and they would have known the term Abraham's bosom. Okay, that's where the righteous go. After death, that's where the righteous go. And just take a quick note. Lazarus, he received no burial. It says that the rich man died and was buried, so he probably had some really fancy grave and tombstone with nice things written about him on it. Lazarus, he probably had a pauper's death. He was probably thrown in a pauper's grave with an unmarked, no no marking, no gravestone at all, uh, just thrown in there with the rest of the dead bodies and the trash of the day. So no recognition in this world for Lazarus when he dies. Now, the rich man from Hades, the place of torment, he looks up and he sees Abraham and he sees that Lazarus is with Abraham. And the rich man, get this, he recognized Lazarus and he knew his name. Huh. So all those days that he was eating at his table and enjoying himself and keeping all of his wealth to himself and eating and drinking and making merry for his own life, his own luxury, his own pleasure, his own enjoyment, he knew Lazarus's name. He had clearly seen Lazarus waiting at his gate, hoping for a crumb, dogs licking at his sores, and he probably thought to himself, well, I don't know what Lazarus did to deserve that kind of life, but I'm certainly not going to help him. If that's God's judgment on his life, then I agree with God. That's his judgment. The rich man recognized Lazarus and knew him by name, even though he had ignored him all the many years during his lifetime. But now the rich man, he who had shown no mercy, 
wanted to receive mercy. And he wanted to receive mercy from the very person he had shown no mercy to. The one lower than him in this world was now higher than him in the world to come. But the rich man, he's still treating Lazarus like Lazarus should serve him. He's saying, Abraham, tell Lazarus to uh, get me some cold water because it's really blazing hot down here. He still felt superior and like Lazarus should serve him. Well, Abraham responds and Abraham calls the rich man child. The rich man called Abraham father. Why? Because like I said, these are all Jewish people. They are biological descendants from Abraham. They are descended from Abraham. And for that, they believe that they are the chosen people of God. They are the righteous ones who will go to Abraham's bosom. They are the righteous ones who will go into the kingdom of God. But remember our context. Jesus is saying the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, but now the kingdom of God is proclaimed. And just a little bit before that, he had said, well, the invited guests to the kingdom of God, they proved unworthy through their worldliness. And so other people are going to replace them. And even in the Luke version of that parable, Jesus said, go out into the highways and the hedges. So like that includes even the Gentiles are going to be a part of this. Jesus is still speaking in parable form, but he is revealing through these parables the redemptive plan of God for the salvation of Israel and then salvation through Israel to the rest of the world and all the nations of the earth. So Jesus is pulling that into this parable as well. Yes, Abraham acknowledges that the rich man is his biological descendant. So he's not his child technically, but he's great, 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 great grandchild because it's that many generations later. So yes, Abraham says, child, remember, that you received good things. But even though the rich man was the biological son of Abraham, he was proving not to be Abraham's offspring. Why? Because Abraham is the father of the faithful. Abraham is the father of those who have faith. And the rich man, by his actions, demonstrated that he did not. Mercy shows that we have faith. Now, the chasm between Hades and the place of the righteous cannot be crossed for all eternity. It is written that man will die once and then face judgment, right? God judges at death, and then you are put in one place or the other based on what you have done in this life. And the rich man was in Hades forever, for all eternity. Well, the rich man persisted and he said, please send Lazarus to my brothers. I have brothers. They need to hear about this. Well, his brothers were probably living the same lifestyle that he was. And they probably considered themselves to be good, godly people who were awaiting the kingdom of God and were obeying the law and the prophets. They probably had the best seats at the synagogue. They probably made contributions to the synagogue. They probably thought of themselves as the most law-abiding, obedient, observant Jews around. Well, another problem with that, though, is that necromancy, which means speaking to the dead or interacting with the dead, well, that's also forbidden by the law. So 
This rich man should have known asking Abraham to send someone from the dead, that would have been a violation of the law too. His brothers would not be in obedience to the law even for listening to someone who was speaking to them from the dead. That's just a little side note, but anyway. So Abraham points out to them, he says, they have the law and the prophets. They have the law and the prophets. Let them listen to the law and the prophets. Don't you get God's heart by reading the law and the prophets? See, the thing is, if they really understood the law and the prophets, they would know how the scripture says again and again and again so many things about showing mercy to the poor. See, this is the thing. There are scriptures that even say, if your brother, your Israelite brother especially, becomes poor for whatever reason, then a fellow Israelite is is supposed to take the one who became poor into their own home and help them to get back on their feet again, not leave them on the street with dogs licking at their sores. You're supposed to bring them into your home, restore them, revive them, help them get back on their feet. That's what the law says about the poor. The law says, love your neighbor as yourself. If you were sitting on the street hungry, homeless, dogs licking your sores, would you want someone to take you in? I think you would. And so if you're the one looking at that person, then do unto your neighbor as you want done unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what the law calls for. The point is, we have to understand the totality of Scripture is about God's gigantic heart of mercy for all people. And the law and the prophets do not contradict that. Jesus is telling a parable to Pharisees who think that their biological descent from Abraham is what's going to be their ticket into the kingdom of God. But he says in other places, nope, you yourselves will be cast out while those will be gathered from the east and the west and they will sit at the table in the kingdom of heaven. This is just another example of one who made it into eternity with the righteous, while the one who they would have thought was the righteous one, the rich man, why is all of this relevant? Because Jesus is telling these parables to Pharisees who were ridiculing them because they loved money. He's speaking to Pharisees, rich people, rich men, about a rich man who is a descendant from Abraham, who even with all of that external appearance of goodness and righteousness, did not make it into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because like the prior parable, they were giving worldly excuses for rejecting God's messenger, and through that were proving unworthy to be a part of the messianic banquet. What Jesus is doing is that as he's going around doing the things that the Pharisees are ridiculing him for, grumbling about, forgiving the sins of sinners and even great sinners, showing mercy to those who are lost and hurting and broken when they repent of their sins, Jesus is perfectly fulfilling the law and the prophets by showing 
mercy to the ones who the Pharisees think should be excluded from relationship with God altogether. And Jesus also knows that he is about to go to the cross. By Luke chapter 16, the cross is not far away. Jesus knows that these very same Pharisees, these religious leaders, are the ones who are going to turn him over to be crucified, that his blood is going to be shed to show the greatest mercy of all to anyone and everyone who will believe that he will die, he will be mocked, ridiculed, rejected, and crucified and killed by this current generation, but on the third day raised from the dead. And so even in this parable, Jesus is predicting his own death and also predicting that these same religious leaders will not believe even after he is raised from the dead, and the kingdom of God continues to be proclaimed after the resurrection. So, some further considerations. Judgment will be merciless to those who have shown no mercy. If you really understand the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, the new covenant does not contradict the old covenant. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. He calls us to take up our cross to follow him. He calls us to show mercy to those who don't deserve it. Why? Because we have received mercy and we have been received into the household of our Father God. And so therefore, we need to receive others with the same level of mercy by which we have been received. And if we don't show mercy, if we don't demonstrate the faith of Abraham, faith in what Jesus has done for us by being able to show mercy to others, then on the day of judgment, no matter what great things we may have done for God, no matter what position we may have attained in this world, no matter what wealth or status we may have, no matter what blessing we think we've had in this world, we will stand before Jesus and he will say, I never knew you because he knows those who have turned their hearts over to him to be shown the way of mercy. Remember that this is a continuation of the series of parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the shrewd manager, forgiving debts, the law still being in full effect, but the kingdom of God now being proclaimed, the kingdom of God, God in goodwill, forgiving the debts of people who have fallen into a ditch in their lives so that they can be restored like a prodigal to the Father, and restored not just as a servant or a slave, but that all who believe in Jesus and who receive him even have the right to become a child of God. Everyone from every nation, tribe, and tongue can be restored to relationship with God because God has shown mercy. Mercy. 